Good morning, church. Reached out to a friend of mine as a pastor in Fayette, Maine this morning and text him as he's going to preach this morning. And I said, you know, Chris, remember, you don't have to preach this morning. You get to preach this morning. And I thought, yeah, that's a good reminder for me. I get to do this. This is a beautiful thing that I get to do to bring God's word to you that we're going to look at here uh, in a moment. It reminded me of a, a preacher of the past, preacher of the past, who used to write in the margin of his sermon notes detailed instructions to himself about how the sermon was meant to be delivered right at that point. So in his notes, in his margin, he would write quietly and persuasively or with power and passion and so on and so forth. Something I do not do, by the way, just in case you're wondering. I do not do that. But with honesty, there was one instruction that he used to write in the margin of his sermon notes as least as frequently as any other. It read, argument weak here, talk fast. (laughs) Argument weak here, talk fast. And I thought, I talk fast a lot, especially when I'm preaching. But that isn't because the argument is weak, okay? Often it's because I'm trying to get a lot in with the time I have, and plus I just tend to talk fast, especially when I'm super excited about what I'm preaching. This morning for sure, for sure, it may go fast, but not because the argument is weak. And as we've been making our way through uh, the book of Romans, I may have been taking things slower than you had hoped, right? Uh, Particularly as I've been working through uh, the bad news of all humanity. And from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul has made a strong case that all people stand guilty, all people are without excuse, all people are under sin. Argument weak here? Talk fast? I think not. Now, I know it's been kind of a rough go over the past few weeks as we've been grappling with the uh, bad news. I've resisted the temptation to jump over or or kind of skim lightly on this tough stuff, and I'm glad I resisted that. Because to speak of the gospel is to speak of both the bad news and the good news. Otherwise, you have only half a gospel. And as Alistair Begg put it, he said, only half a gospel makes half a Christian, which is no Christian at all. Church, we must begin where the Bible begins, as uncomfortable as it may be. And so in 64 verses, over several paragraphs in our Bibles, the answer to what was wrong with humanity, what is wrong with the world, has been clearly laid out for us. Now we come to six verses, one paragraph of the good news. And if I were to write in the margin of my sermon notes, I might write, slow down right here. This is possibly the most important paragraph ever written. Most important paragraph ever written. I borrow that from Leon Morris. I give it back to him when I'm done. Now, of course, now, in saying, in saying that it's the most important paragraph ever written, I want you to understand that I'm not, it doesn't mean at all to suggest these verses here carry any more weight than the rest of Scripture, okay? This is not to be taken as more inspired or that we can kind of pick and choose the parts of the Bible we accept and, and parts of the Bible we choose, you know, we can dismiss them. 
No, no, no. Again, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is inspired by God, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture. And so I am overstating it a bit here. It's the most important paragraph ever written for impact. My invitation to you this morning from what we're going to read is to build your life on this paragraph right here. Make this the center of your world. All right, if you're not there, turn with me. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26 passage that Nathan read for us. And if this is your first time joining with us this morning, it should be obvious by now, we're in the book of Romans. We'll be working through uh, the first eight chapters of Romans. That will take us to the end of May. And then we'll take a break from that with the hopes of looking at the rest of Romans at another time, maybe even this fall. We'll see. But the theme I have chosen for this series is the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. And that theme really bursts forth in this paragraph we're looking at this morning in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Now, Donald uh, Gray Barnhouse uh, drew a heart over these verses in the Bible. And in his commentary on Romans, he said of these verses, he said, I am convinced today, after these many years of Bible study, that these verses are the most important verses in the Bible. Elva McLean said it this way. He said, if I could only have six verses out of the Bible and the rest be taken away, I'd pick these six verses. From verse 21 to 26, all of God's gospel is there. All right, this morning, my headings is what we need, what God has done, and what it means for us. What we need, what God has done, what it means for us. First of all, uh, what we need. Look at me at verse 21. I touched on this verse last week, but I want to give it a little more attention here this morning. Verse 21, two words, but now. But now. That tells us something good is coming. It says, as if God opens up the window and this breath of fresh air fills our lungs. Or to use the language of the Chronicles of Narnia, the long, dark winter is over and Aslan is on the move. But now, after all the muck and mire and the darkness of the human condition and the, and the wrath of God, but now, after addressing the question, what is wrong with humanity? What is wrong with the world? But now. After saying there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. After making it it crystal clear that we cannot save ourselves, that being good can never be good enough, it doesn't say therefore in verse 21. It says, but now. All right, rest of the verse. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Now when it speaks here of the law and the prophets testifying of the righteousness from God, He's he's reaching back and he wants to make it clear that this gospel that he speaks of is not something that he made up, but that the entire Old Testament pointed to the coming of this righteousness. Now you remember, Paul spoke of this righteousness back in uh, chapter 1, verse 17. 
Remember, you can, you can turn there and look at it. It's going to be on the screen as well. But it says, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Yes, it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That's what he said in 117. And then, then he kind of plummeted down from there, from 118 to 320, to expose the human heart. Before returning to this theme of the righteousness from God, it was necessary for us to see the sorry state that we're in to face our own sinful condition. Now again, we mustn't move too quickly over that bad news. It's meant to put a mirror up to our hearts to show us what it is we need. We aren't ready to receive the righteousness God offers to us as a gift until we see the need for it. You see, you need. There was a pastor in a small town. He was called in the middle of the night by someone who was in the hospital. And the pastor didn't know the man, but he got up from his bed and he drove to the hospital. And when he entered the man's room, the patient there was full of apologies. I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry, Pastor. I, I am so sorry. I shouldn't have bothered you. I thought I was going to die. The doctors came into my room and told me I only had a few days to live, so I called you. Then 15 minutes later, they came in and told me that they realized they looked at the wrong x-rays. I was going to be fine. So the man went on. He said, you know, Pastor, I'm not a religious man, but for a moment there, I thought I really needed you. (laughs) For a moment there. Now you can go. I'm all set. Isn't that often the case, though? When things get really bad, my prognosis isn't great, then I can use some help. The truth is, whether you figure you have a short time to live or many more years ahead of you, you, your need is great for righteousness outside of yourself. A righteousness given to you by God. Verse 22, Romans 3. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, let me say this. All the religions of the world boil down to this. You prepare a righteous record to give to God. All religions of the world boil down to this. You prepare a righteous record to give to God. Christianity says God prepares a perfect record of righteousness that he gives to you. That is true of all people, regardless of where you see yourself on that scale of good works. There is no difference, look at the end of verse 22. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of the standard of holiness. And so whether you come from a, a rich spiritual heritage, you're raised in a Christian home, or maybe you're raised in a moral home, or you have privileges as Americans, or you see yourself as conservative politically, or you've tried to live a good life, all this makes no difference at all to one standing before a holy, righteous God. There's only one way to be made right with God. Verse 24, you're justified freely by his grace to the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's it. So what I'm am by my own doing, which I am unable to accomplish, God on the basis of his grace has provided. What did he provide? Redemption. Redemption. Now, let me talk about this matter of redemption briefly here. The word redeemed, you may already know this, it simply means to buy back. To buy back. It's to, it's to liberate someone through a purchase. 
Often it was used to free a slave in that day. But I want to think of it, because it, it also is applied this way, and I want to think of it in terms of a debt, a debt. In the time that this was written, if you fell into debt, filing for bankruptcy wasn't an option. You had a debt to pay. Now, in the Old Testament times, there was a provision in place for those who could not pay back their debt. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 25 through 27, somewhere in there. Write it down, check it out later. And the only way, if you couldn't pay your debt back, what they had as a provision in the Old Testament is a relative, as an act of love, could freely step in to pay that debt by absorbing the cost themselves. It's the whole idea of the kinsman redeemer. Beautiful picture of that, uh, as you probably know, is in the book of Ruth. If you haven't read that in a while, go read book of Ruth. Now you have two homework assignments, Leviticus 25 and the book of Ruth. But it speaks of kinsman redeemer. Now kinsman, meaning a relative, would become your redeemer to get you out of debt. Pay the, your debt, pay it off. Because redemption is a payment. Now, spiritually, none of us can pay the debt we owe God for our sin against him. None of us. Spiritually, there's no way on our own to get out of our debt. We need a kinsman redeemer. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. Kinsman, he came from heaven to earth to be like us, yet without sin. Redeemer, it cost him his life to set us free from our debt, to liberate us from bondage of the guilt of sin. Do you understand our need? Do you understand your need? Whether you're here, where you're not sure where you are with Jesus, and you haven't really received that, do you understand your need? Or maybe further along, you've been walking with Jesus, do you still understand your need? We don't have to keep paying God back, get, get right with him. No, no, do you understand your need? All right, what did God has done? Let's look at what God has done. Notice with me verse 25, Romans 3. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Now that phrase, sacrifice of atonement, is one word in the original. It is the word propitiation. Now my guess is you used that word several times this past week, right? Propitiation. <laughs> Propitiation, could you use it in a sentence, please? <laughs> I'm, big word, right? It simply means to turn away or turn aside wrath. It suggests that anger is satisfied. Whose anger is satisfied? Why did it need to be satisfied? Well, it's God's wrath that needed to be satisfied. We saw back a few weeks ago, Romans 1.18, 1.18, the start of all this bad news stuff. 118, God's wrath, it said 118, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Come on, Pastor, can't we just talk about God's love? Love, 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 it's all you need. Here's the thing. You really can't talk about God's love without also talking about his wrath or his anger. We spent some time on this back when we looked at 118 that we need to remember when we speak of God's wrath. It's not some uncontrollable emotional outburst as we often think of it for ourselves. It's not some emotional crankiness. God's just cranky. 
No, no, no. Love, wrath. God loves the world he has made so much that he is angry at the sin destroying the human race. And as we've already seen, we have all wronged God. We have all sinned against God. We fall short of God's standard of holiness. Because you see, when there's a wrong committed, there's always suffering involved. Think about this. Think about this on, on, on a human level here. Someone has wronged you. That wrong against you causes you pain, causes you suffering, right? Where do you go with that? Well, you can say, I'm going to make them pay for what they did. I'm going to retaliate. I am going to hurt them so they suffer. In your mind, you figure that to make them suffer, somehow it's going to relieve you of your suffering. How does that work? I mean, that's one way to pay back someone for wrong. Make them pay. Make them suffer. Now, let me just ask this question right here. Let's stop here first for a second. Is it time for you to stop making someone pay for his or her wrong that they've owned and they've repented of? Is it time for you to let go of trying to make them pay for that? Work it out. See, we can choose to forgive which then means we have to absorb that debt, right? And, we, and in a sense, you suffer. Someone has to suffer when there's a wrong committed, when there's a debt to pay. You suffer or they suffer. Okay, what has God done with the wrongs against his standard of holiness? Lower his standards? Would he just look away, pretend we never sinned? Listen, God never acted in a way that sin does not matter. God's solution to the problem of sin is that he could forgive it without condoning it. He could keep his standard without turning his back on us. Because God in Jesus Christ suffered for your debt and for mine. Now it's possible that some of you came into this room this morning still suffering with guilt and shame because you haven't really embraced what Jesus has done for you. He chose to suffer for all your sin, all your guilt, all your shame, so that you no longer have to. And you're going, oh, I got, I, I got to pay back God somehow because of what I did. And you're trying to relieve your guilt by some penance. I got to pay him back for what I did. Got to show him. How is that good news? God's payment was perfect. Jesus satisfied the demands of his righteousness, his holiness, by suffering for us. He stood in your place. True story. Probably even used it before. A final exam in a logic class. In a logic class. And it was known in this logic class for its very difficult tests. Well, the professor told the students they could bring as much information to the exam as they could fit on a piece of eight and a half by 11 inch notebook paper. They could bring it in, they can put everything on there they want, and, should, and they certainly did. They came in, the students came in, the final exam. Many, many of the facts as possible crammed on that eight and a half by 11, both sides of the sheet. One student, very cleverly, walked into the class he put a blank piece of paper on the floor 
And he had an advanced logic student stand on that piece of paper. Brilliant. Brilliant. The advanced logic student, as he's standing on this paper, gave him all, everything he needed to know. And he received the only A in the class. See, the ultimate final exam will come when we stand before God. Yes, why should I let you in? On our own, we cannot pass that exam. Any of our creative attempts to earn eternal life are going to fall short. We need someone who's going to stand in for us. You can put all you want on that eight and a half by 11 sheet. I did this, I did this. Doesn't matter. You need a blank sheet and you need Jesus to stand on it and say, I'm standing for you. You're in. Jesus Christ came, became our propitiation by shedding his own blood. God's wrath is satisfied with that payment. I ask, if God is satisfied with the sacrificial death of his son, then who are we to not be satisfied with that payment? Who are we to say, I've got to add some things to it? See, when we add things to what God has done for us, it's to, suggest, it's to suggest that what he did was not sufficient. Quit adding to it. God presented him, Jesus Christ, as a propitiation. All right, what does it mean for us? I think we're already grabbing it. But let's, let's flesh this out some more. What does it mean for us? Well, there's a true story told of an attorney who, after meditating on several scriptures, decided to cancel the debts of all his clients that had owed him money for more than six months. He drafted this letter explaining his decision and its biblical basis, and then he sent 17 debt-canceling letters via certified mail. Interestingly, one by one, the letters were returned. They were unsigned, they were never opened, they were just undelivered, gone. One of the 17 was returned because the person had moved away. But 16 of the 17 letters came back to him because the clients refused to sign the certified letter. They refused to sign the certified letter and open it because they feared that this attorney was suing them for their debts. <laughs> He was doing just the exact opposite. He was releasing them from their debts. We've opened the letter. We've read about God's gift of forgiveness and his offer to pardon your debt. Church, what does this mean for us? Everything. Everything. I pick it up in the middle of verse 25. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished of the Old Testament. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. You see, it's God's great love and his absolute holiness that calls for justice. Justice is served through his blood. He is both just and the justifier. Folks, that's what changes the heart. Believer, live in the gospel. Live knowing that you are justified, that your debts are canceled, that you are set free. Live that way. And if we really embrace the truth that our debts have been canceled, who are we then to go around and collect debts? Are you a debt collector? You owe me. You owe me. 
You've been justified. Now, growing up, I was taught that justified meant, you could say, learn it this way, just as if I never sinned. Okay, that's helpful to remember a big word, but it doesn't go far enough. It isn't as if I never sinned, for I have. It is that I am declared not guilty. There's a big difference. I am declared righteous. I am set in a right standing before God. Jesus paid the price by his own blood. Now God now declares us not guilty. Isn't that freeing? What do we have to do? We have to receive it. Maybe you say, yeah, I have. I'm doing that. I've done that. I'm trusting. But if you're living your life always wondering whether you're getting a good enough grade before God, then you've forgotten the significance of justification. Go back to it. He justifies freely by his grace. Or as F.F. Bruce said it, he goes, God pronounces us righteous at the beginning of his course, not at the end of it. You sign up for God's program, he gives you an A, even before you take your very first class, you get an A. Justification is an act of grace, freely given, and he wants you to walk in that every single day. You have been redeemed, believer. You have been set free. Live in that. Read about a prisoner uh, in Florida many, many years ago now. He was pardoned by the governor. But the prisoner refused to be released. I'm not sure what he was thinking. But he refused to accept the pardon given by the governor. And so the case went to, the, went to court, and the judge ruled that unless the pardon is accepted, that prisoner has to serve his entire sentence. That makes no sense. But neither does it make any sense when, when we know we've been pardoned, we've been set free, yet we sometimes live as prisoners. We, live as, we need to live as a forgiven person. If you have, child of God, you, you, you accepted that pardon, then remember it was your sin that cost Jesus his life. You are justified freely. But listen, what is free is not cheap. If sin has no price, we should just sin on. But no one who truly understands what Jesus did to abolish death, to abolish sin, any genuine believer of that can be cavalier about sin. My sin cost Jesus his life. That is what we're to build our life upon. That's what changes everything. That is what changes my life. Let's never cheapen what God has done by saying, oh, God just accepts everyone. Doesn't really matter what you do. He accepts everyone. Everyone gets into heaven. That does nothing to waken my heart towards him. It does nothing to change my life. To think that God accepts everyone and has done nothing to solve that problem of sinful condition and my guilt, does that really amaze me? Nope. As radically corrupt sinners that were loved by God, that amazes me. 
To think God loves me because I'm a lovable guy is no big surprise. But to take in that God loves me in spite of my faults, my wretchedness, my offenses against him, now that is amazing. But to think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on a cross, my burdens gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Our response, then sings my soul. My Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. I ask you, does the gospel as it stands still amaze you? Should we not fall down in deep awe of God? What a gospel to embrace. What a gospel to be proclaimed unashamedly. Here's the bottom line. The gospel as it stands changes lives. The gospel as it stands changes lives. Do you believe that? Brian, do you believe? Sometimes I do not really live as though I believe that. Oh, we got to get really clever and we got to present it this way and I got to do it. Sure, those, those methods and means are fine, but at the end of the day, those methods and the things that I say won't change anyone. The gospel changes lives as it stands. As it stands. Do I believe in the power of the gospel? 1955, Billy Graham was invited to speak at the University of Cambridge by a small group of Christians who were attending there. Almost immediately, letters to the editor of the Times of, the Times of London began pouring in. They were essentially saying this. I'm sure that Billy Graham's a nice man, but he's a fundamentalist Christian, the sort that believes the blood of Jesus is required for salvation, and we all know that sort of thing doesn't go over here. Further, I can't imagine what the fine young men and women from the University of Cambridge can learn from a man like that. Well, this rattled Graham. He talks about it in his book. This worried Graham. So he set up creating eight well-educated, high-minded, scholarly lessons that he was going to give over the week. They were totally different than he typically gave. He had one lesson for each night that he was to preach at St. Mary, uh, Mary's Church. There were about 8,000 students at the University of Cambridge at that time, and each night, Graham packed the church with 2,000 students and faculty, and on that first Monday night, and, and then, on the, then again on Tuesday night, he, he came with all the things prepared. He quoted from the most brilliant of minds. It was well scholarly, well put together, and he delivered his prepared remarks, and something incredible happened. Nothing. <laughs> For young Billy Graham, nothing significant happened. He fell flat on his face. Well, on that Wednesday night, he was going to give that same kind of message, and, and he put aside his prepared remarks. He said, you know, let me tell you what I know about the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Billy Graham got up that night, and he began at Genesis, and he went right through the whole Bible. He talked about every single sacrifice you can imagine. 
It was described as the blood was just flowing all over the place, everywhere for three quarters of an hour. At the end of the sermon, Billy Graham dismissed the audience and invited anyone who wanted to stay behind, they, they could stay behind and make a commitment to Christ. And at that night, that Wednesday night, to everyone's shock, 400 young men and women stayed to commit their lives to Christ. Tim Keller tells of one young pastor he met years later who was a graduate of Cambridge University. He wanted to know, when did it all begin for you? And this young pastor told him that his Christian faith all began 1955 on that Wednesday night. And he said, it all happened when I walked out of the church and for the very first time I realized that Christ really died for me. What was unbelievable to all those who witnessed what took place that night was that a man like that could give a message like that and it changed people's hearts like that. Church, the gospel stands as it is and it changes lives. Let's pray. God, forgive us. Forgive me. For times I've lost confidence in that. It's ridiculous. And that we can. And yes, you tell us to, to present, you know, in, in a timely way and to present understanding our culture and all that. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, we must remember that the power comes from the gospel itself. Not by my clever words where I can manipulate a, 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 a speech or a sermon, the power is in the cross of Jesus Christ. And the only appropriate response to that is say, great are you, Lord, and be in awe of you, and go, wow, what a God. And that be on our hearts and minds as we live that and as we unashamedly share that with others. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.